0: Thank you for joining me today and welcome to the Spiritual Warrior Coach podcast. I am your host Barbara Savin and I am here to help you reclaim your power, your energy and your authentic self. I am a certified clinical and medical hypnotherapist, Reiki master and teacher, energy healing specialist, life coach and best-selling author of Gentle Energy Touch: The Beginner's Guide to Hands-on Healing. heart desires because one day the world will tap you on your shoulder and say this is your time to shine and speaking about shining I'm going to bring my guest on right now good morning Doug how are you
1: I'm great Barbara I'm I'm up here in central California you're down in Ventura County you know enjoying the California weather
0: I know, right? It's it's beautiful. It's been hot uh, past few days, but it's getting a little cooler today.
1: Yeah, it's supposed so to wait. drop. It's supposed to drop today.
0: I, I hope so. And we just need rain, and that'll uh. that'll be yeah, a lot of rain. So let me tell my listeners a little bit about you, uh, Douglas E. Noel. Right, is your last name? Mm-hmm. Okay, is an award-winning author, speaker, visionary, mentor, teacher, and trainer. And after 22 years as a trial lawyer, Doug became a peacemaker and meditator. And Doug is the co-founder of the award-winning Prison of Peace Project, in which he teaches murderers in maximum security prisons to be peacemakers and mediators. And he has written four books, and his latest book was released September 12th, 2017, entitled de-escalate how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less and he is the creator of an online video courses in legal negotiation and emotional de-escalation and has uh, conducted dozens of webinars and his video offerings on youtube has over eighty seven thousand views wow it's um you've done a lot of work let me tell you (laughs) and you know welcome to the show number one I'm so happy to have you here and I I'm so curious how did this all come about for
1: you well (laughs) I grew up in San Marino and uh in the 50s and Actually, I was was born with a lot of disabilities. I was born nearly blind, deaf, crippled. I I had two club feet, couldn't walk until I was three years old. I had a lot of problems and ultimately overcame them and went to Dartmouth College back east and then came back to California and, and went to law school. And when I graduated from law school, I moved to central California and became a commercial and civil trial lawyer for 22 years mostly handling very large complex financial and commercial cases Um, along the way I took up the martial arts and when I was I got my I was awarded my second degree black belt I think I was about I was 40 years old and my teacher told me to go learn Tai Chi so I did and Tai Chi is the oldest martial art it's also extremely vicious as a fighting art but it has two really interesting paradoxes the first is the softer you are the stronger you are and the more vulnerable you are the more powerful you are so it's soft to be strong vulnerable to be powerful and at first I did not get that <laughs> I did not compute <laughs> but eventually uh-huh. these paradoxes squeaked <laughs> into my soul until one day in the late 90s I was trying a case and cross-examining somebody and the thought came to me what the heck am I doing in here and after that trial I had a vacation planned and on that vacation I thought about how many people I had really served as a trial lawyer and concluded that in 22 years, I'd only really helped five people, five five clients. And I said, I'm not gonna do this anymore. But I didn't know what I was gonna do. And when I came back, I was driving down that Monday, right after the trip, I, I was coming down out of the mountains to my office and heard what turned out to be the one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree program in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is the West Coast, one of the West Coast Mennonite universities. And Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches. And it caught my attention. And ultimately, I enrolled. And for three years, I was a full-time graduate student, again, <laughs> in my late 40s. Uh, you know, a three-quarters time law professor uh, teaching at our local law school and full-time trial lawyer. So it was a very crazy time. But it completely, the, 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 my studies, academic studies, completely turned me around. And I had a lot of discussions with my partners about what kind of a practice I wanted to establish. And they, they did not like the idea of me leaving the courtroom because I was the second largest earner in the law firm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't like to see that cash flow go away. And ultimately, I just walked out. I, just, wow. yeah, I gave a week's notice, left $10 million on the table, and just walked out and started my own peacemaking practice in uh, on November 1st, 2000. So that's how it started. It was an evolution, not a sudden decision.
0: It's amazing when things just uh, come across us and then we realize that is our true purpose and passion.
1: That's right. And that's exactly right. I and mean, I did everything I told my clients not to do. No business plan, no savings, no nothing. I just walked out and started over. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's
0: being, <laughs> being brave also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I I feel it's it's a matter of really trusting ourselves and know that we will be able to accomplish what we truly feel we need to.
1: That's right. I mean, and for me, for many, many years, I was living a non-integrated life. You know, I was a very successful lawyer on the outside, but that was not on the inside. I I was following a spiritual path that was completely opposite of what I was doing in my career. And so, and that creates a lot of stress when you have that discontinuity so Mm -hmm. it was really quite an easy decision for me to walk away because all of a sudden I could start living an integrated life Mm -hmm. which I do today and I've never been happier
0: so now you teach murderers how to be peacemakers
1: yes uh
0: that amazes me because you figure they're so angry inside that that's why they end up murdering somebody
1: well it Anger, yes, and a lot of other, a lot of a lot other of
0: things. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but the way that project started was uh, in 2005. I developed a, a skill that is completely innovative on how to re- literally calm somebody down in 90 seconds or less, which of course led to my fourth book. Uh, and then in 2009, I received a call from a close friend of mine, a colleague, another lawyer and mediator, in, not too far from you, in uh, over in Hidden Hills, Calabasas. Laurel Coffer who um, called to read a letter to me and she had received a letter from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world, which at that time was Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from where I live. And she was basically asking if Laurel would come in and teach their networking group, which was comprised of about 150 women serving life sentences, how to be peacemakers and mediators, so they could stop the prison violence because they were just tired of it. And Laurel read the letter to me and said, "What do you think?" And I said, "I think we should do this." <laughs> so it took us six months to uh, get permission, and we finally started in April of 2010. We we are both professors at Pepperdine, the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution. We are both very experienced mediation trainers and workshop presenters and things like that, and we had we decided that we had to do a very different curriculum than what you would get at a university level mediation training or a graduate class Mm -hmm. because we had we we knew that we were going to work with incarcerated people who had no no skills at all that's why they're in prison and Uh so so we developed this really unique curriculum and we started with the women and um By five weeks into the program, there was a waiting list of that. At that time, the prison had about 3,300 women in it. We had a waiting list of over 400 women who had heard about what we were doing and wanted to get in on it. So our first class was 15 women. Then the next three classes after that, there were about 40 women. And we just expanded the class dramatically. We stayed in that prison for three years, uh, extremely successful. And then the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation repurposed it to a men's prison. And we ultimately went back in and started teaching men the same process. And it got, we got exactly the same results with the men. Well, this was all pro bono from 2010 to 2016. And we were, we'd basically wiped out our professional practices and devoted ourselves to this work. And finally, we started getting grants from the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to, to expand the program. And, and before the pandemic, we were in 15 California prisons. We received a grant to do a prison in Connecticut from a family foundation there and we had a colleague who started prison of peace and is now in 15 prisons in greece and we wow. have colleagues in italy and nairobi who are getting ready to start prison of peace in northern italy and in kenya so that's how the project started the the we've i've trained over 20 i and my colleagues have trained over 20,000 people incarcerated in california prisons how to be peacemakers we've had about Six or seven thousand released and on parole. And to our knowledge, not one of our students has ever reoffended.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: Zero recidivism. Yeah, and and in the prisons where we get the, when we get the program established properly, and we haven't been been successful in every prison getting it established. There are a lot of factors that that you know govern whether or not we're going to be successful or not that are outside of our control but where we have been successful which is in the majority of prisons prison violence has been dramatically reduced on the yards where we've introduced prisoner peace
0: wow that's that's a beautiful thing to hear because i know there's so much abuse in prisons
1: but they're mean, pretty, had, it's pretty tough place. tough yeah.
0: place yeah it's it pretty very scary and yeah. <laughs>
1: you
0: know, and, and on any level, you know, whether they they murder or they're just there for a, you know a, a crime or whatever it may right. be, it's it's scary. I right. have clients that that, that uh, had <laughs> they were in prison like for minor things, like maybe for one or two days, and they said it was the most frightening experience they've ever ever witnessed.
1: Yeah, they they are difficult environments. On mm-hmm. the best of days, <laughs> they're difficult. Well,
0: and- they, they, this should be taught in the schools.
1: Well, I have taught this in schools. And oh, okay. uh, <clears throat> interestingly, we got phenomenal results, but for whatever reason, the school district didn't want to stay, stick with the project. Uh, yeah. Kind of kind of mind boggling sure. to me, but, but just the way school bureaucracies operate, they, they're, not, they're not designed for new innovative ideas.
0: That's a shame because I, I feel a lot of, excuse me, people that will maybe commit a crime if they learn to calm themselves and not, you know, to, to take a moment to think before they react that uh, a, a lot of situations wouldn't happen. You know, well, probably, you know, a lot of the shootings and everything.
1: That's right. I, I really think more importantly, parents need to learn how to listen to their their children's emotions and be emotional coaches for their children. Every single person that I've worked with in prison has a horrible story to tell of the, about their upbringing. Horrible, yeah, yeah. just horrible. And um, there's a reason why they're there. You know, murderers are not born; they're bred, and they're bred by their parents and by or by their lack of parents or their lack of parenting. <laughs> and you know, they are what they are. They just simply reflect the environment that they grew up in.
0: Yeah, there's always a root cause for something. Exactly. Always. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <clears throat> so let me ask. I mean, we all get angry. I mean, even <laughs> my myself every now and then. I get angry, I think, mostly at my husband than anything else. <laughs> but uh how do we actually, I mean, you're you're saying that in 90 seconds or less you can actually stop <clears throat> an angry person. I'm curious how you know, I know for myself, I before I re I react. I just step back a little bit and think, you know, it's many times we have to um choose our battles and stuff, but uh, I just sit, step back and say, all right. You know, is it worth me, you know, getting angry or or pushing somebody else's buttons and what is the the reaction? So I'm curious like how do you deescalate an angry person in 20 seconds or less?
1: Well, the 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 secret is understanding that we've been lied to for 4,000 years. And what we've been told by theologians and philosophers is that what makes us human is our rationality. And that's a complete lie. (laughs) It's totally false. There is no science to support that fundamental belief that we've had for all these years. In fact, neuroscience says exactly the opposite. What makes us human are our emotions. Mm -hmm. And we cannot be rational unless we're emotional first. Because how would you even know how to engage in rational thinking, or reasoning, or critical thinking, unless you had an emotional experience that told you that you had a problem to solve? So the first insight that I teach is that we are 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And once you get that insight and start seeing other humans as emotional beings, not as rational beings, then you can start thinking about the interventions to use when people are angry. And it turns out that a skill that I developed called affect labeling, um, I discovered it by accident when my back was up against the wall in a very difficult mediation in 2005. And then in 2007, Matthew Lieberman at UCLA published a brain scanning study showing what exactly was going on when this affect labeling process occurred. And what happens is, uh, and I'll explain the the technique in just a second, but, wh- but what happens is when you label somebody's emotions, the emotional centers of their brain are inhibited, so they literally quiet down. And at the same time, a part of the brain that is, Daniel Goldman called this the amygdala hijack, but the part of the executive function of our brain, the ventral lateral prefrontal cortex, which is, which is almost always overwhelmed with strong, when we have strong emotional feelings, so we can't think clearly, uh, activates So literally what I'm doing is I'm lending you my prefrontal cortex for the 30 to 90 seconds it takes for your prefrontal cortex to come back online and for your emotional centers to quiet down and for you to get back in control of yourself. And the way I do that is through a three-step process. The first thing I do is I ignore your angry words. So Barbara, you're screaming at me and <laughs> tossing me up and down. And
0: she sounds like my husband. <laughs>
1: just Ignore it. You ignore the word. You heard it all before. There's no news here. You can uh-huh. afford to just ignore what's going on. And when you do that, two things happen. One, you've, you free up bandwidth to pro- do the other processing you've got to do. And two, you don't get triggered. It's only when we listen to the words do we get triggered. A- and we, it gets us emotional and we re- revert to childhood programming and then we lose it. So ignore the words. Second step, read the emotions. Read the emotional data fields. We all have emotions all the time. It's data that we are presenting out into the world all the time. And what's really interesting is that our brains are hardwired to pick up on all of those emotional cues, that emotional data. Um, from an, It's really interesting evolutionary biology. We um, humans did not acquire the ability to speak language until only 230,000 years ago. But for millennia before that, hominids of all different kinds obviously were in clans and families and groups, and they communicated with each other. Well, how did they do that? They did it through emotion and emotional expression. So our brains are hardwired to understand and efficiently and accurately pick up on the emotions of other people. But the problem is because we've been taught that emotions are bad, they're weak, they make you vulnerable, they're irrational, they're bad. This whole myth of rationality thing I talked about a moment ago. We're never really trained on how to observe other people's emotions. But once you learn how to do it, and it's really simple, you just sit in silence, empty your mind, and the emotions, the other person's emotions will start flowing into your consciousness. So that's how you read emotional data fields. And then you've got to learn how to structure the data, which is in my workshops and classes, I teach you how do, how do we structure this data to make sense of it. And there's a technique for doing that um, that makes it very easy to understand what another person is experiencing. And then the third step. So we ignore the words. Now we're reading the emotional data fields. We're picking up on the emotions. And then the third step is to reflect back the emotions to the emotional person with a simple use statement. Oh, Barbara, you're really angry. You're really pissed off. You, know, you don't feel listened to you. You don't feel appreciated. Nobody's listening to you. You feel like you're being treated unfairly. And the whole thing is really concerning to you. It makes you anxious. You're sad. You feel abandoned and betrayed. And so I'm just reflecting back the emotional experience that I see that you're having. And they, these emotions come in layers. And so we just learn how to read the different layers of emotions and reflect them back. And we do that for, until four things happen. One, you say, yeah, exactly, which is what people will do. They will uh, drop their shoulders, they'll sigh, and they'll nod their heads up and down, affirmatively. And those are all four involuntary relaxation responses showing that you flipped the brain. The emotional centers have deactivated the ventral lateral prefrontal is online, back in charge, and now they're calmed down. It takes about 45 to 60 seconds and then then you can go into you know find out what the problem is and deal with the problem and where most people make their mistakes is that they try to problem-solve or they try to justify or they try to appease or apologize or they try to soothe an angry person none of that stuff works never has Or they use I statements those those only make people angrier yes. all that all I statement active listening stuff from Carl Rogers and Thomas Gordon back in the 50s all wrong no science to support it. It's still taught. I can't believe it. it's still taught, but it is. It's taught in psychology schools, and it's taught in graduate schools, like at Pepperdine when they're trying to teach young students how to listen. They use this I statement stuff. It just doesn't work. No. and Which is why I developed what I developed, because I was taught all that stuff too, and uh, it did not work in the intense conflicts that I was called in to work on. so ignore the words read the emotions reflect back the emotions with a simple you statement until you get the head nod the the verbal response the dropping of the shoulders and the sigh of relief and that's it it's that simple
0: then they feel that you're listening
1: they feel deeply validated
0: yeah validated and you Mm -hmm. take
1: that really angry angry i mean really angry person and they are extremely grateful to you because you have listened them into existence and they've never had that experience before. Yeah. yeah. I and now,
0: I, I mean everything is emotion.
1: That's right. We're all we're emotional beings, totally. Everything. Now the spiritual practice. Let's talk about that since this is a spiritual warrior podcast and I don't get to talk about this very often.
0: <laughs> oh, I was like, right, let's do it.
1: So, uh-huh. you're, you're from fami- I know you're well you're very well familiar and probably everybody who's listening has heard of the work of Eckhart Tolle. <coughs> you know, the presence of now. The problem with Eckhart Tolle, as with many other spiritual teachers, is that they all tell us what to do, but they don't tell us how to do it. Right? There's nothing in any of his writing that says how do you get how do you become present in the moment. <laughs> it happened to him in a moment of despair, on a park bench. You know, he was going through a life crisis, and but he did, really doesn't know what happened, and he can't replicate it, and he can't duplicate it. But he's eloquent about what he talks about, and it resonates with people. So he's made quite a career out of being able to talk about this stuff. Well. Here's what I discovered. When you listen another person into existence by ignoring the words, reading the emotions, and reflecting back the you statement, you move out of ego into a oneness, a, 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 one, a presence of oneness, where you feel totally connected. Your ego dissolves. You feel totally connected to the universe. And you feel totally connected to this person who's very angry. It's all one. And that feeling is palpable it's duplicable, it's replicable, and it lasts for about 15 or 20 seconds. And then once you've had that experience, then you understand what it is, and then you can you can replicate it again. And so what happens is when you engage in this form of peacemaking by calming an angry person, you're actually engaging in your own spiritual practice because you become one, and you sense that oneness with the universe. With that, very yeah, very and, powerful. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know for myself, uh it's it's important to be still right and and yeah and and to feel the silence you could say
1: right and the beauty of this practice is because you're so focused on the upset person and their emotional experience you, there's no room for your ego to get in the way mm-hmm. and so it just dissolves and there's some really interesting controversial neuro, neuroscience about what's going on when you do this uh, but that's probably beyond the scope of what we want to talk about. Uh, but but, the, but the, the the feeling is palpable.
0: So do you feel that uh, people should utilize that type of feeling with a spouse or a partner?
1: Always. Children, I've had parents that learn these skills. Mm-hmm. They stop temper tantrums immediately. The studies show that when you do this with small children, by the time they're age, their pre-adolescent, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, they're typically two, two grade levels ahead of their peers academically. They are emotionally far more mature than their peers. Uh, you know, they score high on emotional intelligence assessments. And all you've got to do is coach them on how to manage their emotions. Most parents don't do that. They do exactly the opposite. They invalidate their children's emotions. Right. And when it's severe enough, it causes people to do things that, it, that cause them to go to prison. Uh, But yes, this is a skill that will stop fights and arguments in your life forever, period. End of story.
0: Does it help them with depression and stress and all that?
1: It can, because another aspect of this is we've been talking about what I call third-party affic labeling, where I'm helping you calm down. But you can also affect label your own emotions. And just simply by labeling your own emotions, you can develop self-awareness and self-regulation. And, you know, neuroscientist and psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University has written a beautiful book about this. And she advocates uh, developing emotional granularity, being so, having as many different words and working vocabulary as you have associated with as many different emotional experiences that you can have. And the more granular you are, the more, the calmer you're going to be, the happier you're going to be, um, the more resilient you are and the less stress you experience.
0: And do you feel by doing that you actually do not pick up other people's energies or That's their correct. emotions?
1: Well, my wife and I teach empaths and highly sensitive people how to master their, their gift. And this is one of the skills that we teach them is become develop this very deep, granulated emotional sensitivity. Is, it, is this my anger or is this your anger? Whose anger is this and where is it coming from? And when we teach them how to, that discernment, you know, then they've got a tool that they can start working with so that they're not overwhelmed as most HSRs are, um, HSPs rather, uh, are are overwhelmed by being around other people. And once they learn this discerning, this form of discernment, then it becomes much, much easier to manage and control their sensitivities.
0: Yeah, because I know empaths, we, we take on the world.
1: Right exactly
0: i mean we feel everything including all this politics that's going on
1: that's right yeah and and once you can separate what causes the confusion with empaths and hsps is that they can't separate out their own emotional experience from the emotions and, and energies of everybody else around them and so the very first step in gaining power is to discern is this mine or is this somebody else's
0: and, and many, I'd say the majority of the times it's somebody else's.
1: It's almost always somebody else's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you don't have discernment, you don't know. You walk into a mm-hmm. supermarket and all of a sudden you're in a rage. Mm-hmm. It's because somebody two aisles over is in a rage and you're picking up on it, right? You don't know where it comes uh-huh. well, from.
0: Well, that's it. I, I know when I walk into the mall. So you've got
1: yeah. you to learn, mm-hmm. you've got to really learn to be a, an, a, a, you know an emotional Jedi. You're locked up on me.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, before I walk into any place that where there's other people, like for myself, I, I visualize myself stepping into um, a protective light shield. So it, it protects my energy. Otherwise, um, I, I have a tendency to, uh, to feel a lot of people. And it makes it a little challenging.
1: Right. Exactly. So these are the kind of skills that you can develop th- to help you manage all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel that uh, we should teach some of these politicians some of this? <laughs> Maybe. Well, we they don't want to learn.
1: They, I mean, they don't want to learn. I mean, and the reason mm-hmm. is that they're using. I mean, so people ask me, well, how do you, how what kind, how do you know whether you're dealing with a, a, a voting for the right person? I said it's very easy. Is this person leading me to the light? Mm -hmm. Or are they leading me to darkness? If they're leading me to darkness, I don't care what party they're in, I don't vote for them. Exactly. And if you look at what's going on now, most politicians lead to the darkness because they believe that, you know, by fear and grievance and anger raises big bucks Mm -hmm. for their campaign. And they, they prey on the, you know, the insensibilities of people who are not happy and you know they they're, they're they're criminals themselves and they just go to the darkness so i don't vote for them you know
0: No, i i see this a lot i, I well you know I, i'm not a television person but when um every now and then someone else mentioned you know what someone's done and i said it's it's all emotion right they're, they're playing on your emotions that's Right. and and that's where everyone gets uh in trouble
1: that's right. And, you know, this, is, this has been, uh, it's been growing for many, many years. I, I, I think that a lot of the problems that we have in our country today go to our educational Our educational system has collapsed. And, you know, children are not taught to be critical thinkers. They're not taught anything like what I was taught back in the 50s and 60s. And, as, and, and the other thing that happened, the unintended consequence of the feminist movement was that brilliant women who could only be school teachers, who were geniuses teaching third grade are now doctors and lawyers and business women, and you know, they have a lot of career opportunities that did not exist back then. And I had, when I grew up, I had teachers who were literally geniuses. And, you know, you, the, today, at least in the region where I live, most teachers graduate in the lower half of their graduating class in college. Teaching is an easy job. It's not an easy job.
0: Well, it's not when dealing with all the emotions of the teenagers. Right. And well, the- yeah, or
1: whatever. It's it's not an easy job, but but it is. But because of the the way the pay, the, the way we incentivize uh-huh. that career, the best and the brightest don't go into teaching, as a general rule. So, and, and our education system suffers as a result of it.
0: Boy, does it suffer! And I've I've never seen it so. I mean, I grew up in the '40s and '50s, so and when I we were taught so differently than the kids nowadays.
1: And I'm not saying that, 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 that period of time was better. I mean, we had, you know, I was born in 1950. It was five, five years, four years after the end of World War II. Discrimination Mm -hmm. was rampant, you know, classism, sexism, you know, associate, you know, I mean, with clear class structures, it was not a, (laughs) <laughs> very authoritarian, very, very patriarchal. It was a difficult time for a lot of people. So I can't say that going back to those days is a good thing because it's not. But mm-hmm. to your point, the educational system was very different than it is today. And it produced a different breed of person. All of us who are older now, we're all boomers, that mm-hmm. you know, we're different than the, are the generations behind us because of what we went through.
0: And I think we respected uh, uh, you know others uh, and and we 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 felt more for them than what it is now a lot of kids nowadays are so desensitized that it's uh, it amazes me
1: well sure because they can access the world through the internet on their uh-huh. phones and there's a lot of the stuff out there that's not good for them <clears throat> you know kids don't go out and play anymore right. Mm-hmm. Parents won't let them go out and play. They got s- afraid.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: they're afraid. They helicopter parents. And and you know, when I grew up, I was kicked out of the house during the summertime at eight o'clock in the oh, morning. Yeah. I said, don't come back till eight o'clock at night.
0: When <laughs> mm-hmm. those don't lights back. went on, you had to come home. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same with me. It was completely. And we had no phones or anything. No, so. nothing.
1: You had to yeah, make your own entertainment. And and yeah. you know, I mean, I. Remember, color television didn't come in until what, 1958, 59, 60, somewhere in there?
0: Uh-huh, so around that vicinity, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, our, the technology, we didn't grow up in a technological world, although we thought it was pretty technical, but nothing like today.
0: No, no. And, and it, it just amazes me
1: mm.
0: um, how everyone's on their phones and computers. And right. yeah, and back in my day, we didn't even have a television.
1: So. Right. You well, boy, I don't think it
0: was a little radio. <laughs> I
1: haven't I haven't had I mean we had television mm-hmm. when I was a kid growing up, but I haven't owned a television in 40 years.
0: Mm.
1: I mean I just don't watch television. I don't listen to the radio. Um there's no point to it. <laughs> you know. Very
0: negative. It's very negative. They put each other down and again it's it's all based on uh, emotion.
1: Yeah, they're trying um, to I mean the producers are yeah. trying to understand that to keep eyeballs on the screen, they've got to cre- create a lot of drama and a lot of conflict. Which mm-hmm. is bad modeling. It's just modeling bad behavior.
0: Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's just a shame that our shows that are on television aren't positive and loving, and but that doesn't um, bring in money.
1: That's correct. It doesn't. It doesn't stimulate people like mm-hmm. drama does. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so l- let me ask you. I, I know you just going back just a little bit. You, you mentioned about. Um, a hidden genius, a genius. Yeah. So, what, what?
1: So, our, what hidden, hidden our emotions hidden... are our hidden genius. Okay. When we can learn that we are emotional beings, not rational beings, and we can unlock our hidden genius and really become masters of our emotions, then all kinds of amazing things happen. We become clearer thinkers. We become more innovative. We become more creative. And it's not a haphazard process. Uh, we 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 walk into the fullness of who we are as human beings. And this is something that corporate America has to learn. That they're they're learning the hard way for the Great Resignation, <laughs> is that uh-huh. for, for for generations employees were told Le- leave your emotional baggage at home. Well, that's like asking you to leave 98 percent of who you are at exactly. home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, people are finally fed up with it, and so they're leaving and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. Take you know, remember that old take that job and shove it Johnny Paycheck <laughs> back in the 80s or whatever it was <clears throat> um, well that's what people are doing because mm-hmm. although although it, it's not been explicit explicit although I'm talking about it a lot um, people are we are emotional beings and if we don't if if employers don't pay attention to the, to the fact that their employees are first and foremost emotional and not rational then they're going to institute policies that go against our actual human nature. And at some point in time, people are going to just say, I've had enough, I don't need this anymore. Yeah,
0: And, then they're gonna look either and for that's what the we're job. seeing. Yeah, oh, you yeah know, the, big time. The, the
1: mm-hmm. pandemic accelerated something that was already occurring, which is r- remote work. And in the pandemic, for the two years we were in lockdown, you know, people learned. I can live in Bozeman, Montana, and still be a Silicon Valley tech engineer. I can live in Prather, California, and teach around the world my groundbreaking ideas you know I haven't done a in-person presentation I've done one in-person presentation in two years everything is virtual now yeah it is and thank God (laughs) you know
0: (laughs) know. (laughs) well for me I still have to go into the office but we're okay
1: I work out of my home and it's great I mean I have one I have one planned trip this year to Indianapolis to teach a, a leadership group about my, the stuff that we're talking about, but uh, it, it, things that things have really changed, and I think was a better.
0: Yeah, I I feel so also, uh, and then also it gives us more time with family. Right. So you're not traveling, and right. you just have more time. I feel to relax and, oh, yeah. and de-stress yourself.
1: Yeah, imagine yeah, living. Crazy. Imagine living where you live in Simi Valley and having a commute to downtown LA every day.
0: <laughs> I don't. <know. laughs>
1: Well, even the other way suppose you're halfway between LA and Santa Barbara imagine having this commute up to Santa Barbara I mean the 101 is insane especially through Carpenteria it's crazy
0: uh-huh e- either way is insane so right. I-, I work in Westlake Boulevard and they take the back streets so Great. there's no so highway. So yeah, yeah no highway driving for me so yeah and it's calm it's right. beautiful mountains and I said we're, we're good It'll, it takes me maybe 15 20 minutes longer to get there but I'm calm. When right. I get there right. and no one's behind me tailgating exactly. or, anything, or cursing at me or whatever it may be. But um, yeah. So, yeah, you know, we learn, we learn how to help ourselves.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. That's why I'm a, i am uh, I avoid the highways when I can, but um, so, you know, um, you mentioned about, you know, corporate America, how does a, a leader, or actually I should ask what separates a leader from, from a manager? Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. You know, so we manage things, and we lead people. We don't manage people. So managers manage processes, schedules, budgets, resources, stuff like that. Leaders lead people. And leadership is all about emotion. Because what, it, what is it that you want your people to do? You want them to be motivated. You want them to be productive. You, hopefully you want them to be happy. You want them to be creative. You want them to grow, if you're a good leader uh all of that is about emotions none of it is about doing a task and so learning to be a leader means learning how to listen to emotions and 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 lead emotionally so there's a big difference and and a leader provides in any group whether it's a work or any kind of group leaders will naturally arise. We see, saw, see, see this in the prison, of course. Natural leaders arise on the, on the prison yards. And leaders provide three services to a group, psychological service. They provide direction, focus, and safety. And Google did an, uh, a, a groundbreaking study on why its t- the top 1% of its teams were so outstanding compared to the rest of the company employment structure. And the people that did the research um, discovered one thing differentiated these teams from all of the teams, psychological safety. When the leaders created psychological safety that allowed the introverts to feel like they were accepted, that stopped the bullying, stopped the gossip, stopped the BS, it was okay to be wrong, it was okay to make mistakes, uh, nobody ever felt put down, everybody felt valued, they felt emotionally and psychologically safe those teams excelled Mm -hmm. and when those when that attribute did not exist on other teams they did not excel they might probably did okay but nothing compared their performance nothing compared to these other teams so so in my view leadership one of the primary functions of leadership is creating psychological and emotional safety for your team and that's difficult for leaders to get because Mm -hmm. you know they're all about quantitative analysis and number, that's all management stuff, <laughs> you know. Uh, I've been going back and revisiting the work of Peter Drucker, who was the, you know, the management guru in the 50s, 60s, and 70s out of Claremont. And even he, even he, in his early, in his writings, um, talked about the importance of a leader paying attention to the people and the emotions of the people, not, it's not so, you have to master some of these other skills, but it's, it's the mastery of the people that, that really separates good, good leaders from bad.
0: You know, I, when I was, I was a regional sales director for a a big company, managed 500 employees. And the area that I took over was one of the worst areas. And it was all the Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, Staten Island, all, all the boroughs. And within a year's time, completely turned it around and we became number one, in the country for three consecutive years. And mm-hmm. the only thing I did different was to show I cared. That's right. Never put anyone down. All I wanted them to do was just do your job. And if you needed help, just call me or I'll come visit, you know, the location. And that's all it was. And and it was amazing the difference in the people that were there. All of a sudden, they cared. That's right. and and, and we became number one. That's right. So
1: simple. And yet, there is so much resistance to this idea. Mm -hmm. I can't, and the reason that I think there's a resistance goes back to what we were talking about before the fact that we are not competent with emotions. So, emotions cause us to be anxious and frightened. And we're not trained in how to be emotionally competent, there's no schooling around that so that we want to put the emotions aside because they're too messy, they're too soft, they're too touchy-feely, that's soft skill stuff. I don't want to do that. I want to read a spreadsheet, you know? That I can quantify. I feel more comfortable with when it's abstract and I can just focus on something that's not emotional. And as a result of that attitude in leadership, you get all this chaos and and crisis and problems and the great resignation.
0: Well, that's it, yeah. And I I know for myself uh, as a regional sales director, all it was, was paying attention to how they felt That's right. and if, if something wasn't right to help them correct it.
1: That's right. That's all it is. I mean, it's simple to state, not so easy to execute.
0: No, it wasn't easy, but, but you can do it.
1: That's right. It's not impossible. You just yeah, have, you have to take the time to learn the skills.
0: Mm-hmm. So let, let me ask you, because I know, you know, uh, uh, and, and I did the same thing for my kids, Um what do you think is the most important thing that, that a parent can do for, say, for a child?
1: Listen their child into existence. Mm-hmm. Listen to their emotions and reflect back those emotions. The science is absolutely clear about this. You know, And parents don't do this. Parents routinely emotionally invalidate their children. You know, And what, what, what do I mean by that? So here I am, I'm two years old and I'm running, well, I wasn't walking at two, but when I did start to walk, <laughs> I was running around not very well pretty clumsy fall over skin my knee at say four years old and start to cry and what am I told yeah don't cry don't cry
0: yeah
1: you know don't be a sissy don't be a girly girl every parent says it and they think they're toughening their kids up not it's no. it's the it's the worst thing you can do to a child is tell them to deny their emotions because they they, they their, their brains are forming their emotional centers of their brain um, the limbic system and the amygdala, they haven't completely come online yet and they're developing from 18 months until about six years old. And they've got the brain has to have all this experience and be taught how to manage emotions. And parents, of course, don't do that because it, it wasn't done to them. So they become, kids become emotionally stuck. They, most children stop emotional development at six years old and they grow into physical adults with the emotional maturity of a six year old. And you wonder why we have all these problems we have That's and why problems. we see people i mean you see it in your therapy business i'm sure a lot a lot of problems because people were emotionally stunted they weren't and they've never felt emotionally safe so you're not emotionally safe how are you going to have an intimate relationship with another human being if you don't feel emotionally safe inside yourself so how can we get this to the schools they don't want to listen i don't know how we get it to them i mean I've, I they've had every opportunity i mean like i said i've worked with the fifth largest school district in california as an example I am going back to Indiana to teach a leadership institute for school principals back there, but um, this is all this knowledge is new, and school bureaucracies are so entrenched and so difficult to work with that instituting change of any kind is almost impossible.
0: So, in actuality, any type of like emotional invalidation can, can be deadly.
1: It's absolutely deadly. There's research that shows how deadly it is. And you're in California. Have you, have you have you come across the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experiences study out of San Diego? <laughs> That'll scare you. You can Google it. Okay. Just Google ACEs study. Um, John Furly and his researchers down and at Kaiser Foundation in San Diego did a longitudinal analysis of patients coming into the Kaiser system in San Diego. You know San Diego's a middle class, upper middle class county. They've got poverty, but not a lot of it. A lot of military. And they were able to correlate, they sent out questionnaires to like 20,000 people that they had in the database. And they were able to correlate what people experienced as children to medical outcomes later in life. And they found that anybody who has suffered from three adverse childhood experiences was a thousand times more likely to die of cancer, or COPD, or diabetes, or BCD, or any other of these comorbid, horrible diseases. And they found that people that had three, three or more adverse childhood experiences were more likely to go to prison, were more likely to be addicted, were more likely to take up smoking, to engage in antisocial behavior, to drop out of school. To, I mean, just really poor life outcomes. And there were, they identified nine adverse childhood experiences, of only which two were physical, sexual abuse and physical abuse. The other seven were all emotional.
0: Emotional. Well, wow, my parents must have really raised me well then. <laughs> well, man, it's amazing back, that we yeah. do as well
1: as we do. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's all on a continuum. And now we're talking about mm-hmm. the extremes. People that go to prison, people that die of cancer at you know a relatively young age that had adverse childhood experiences. But there's a whole continuum of people behind them who are not suffering that way, but they're still suffering. They're unhappy. They're miserable. They live unfulfilled lives. They feel empty. They're not happy in their marriages. Um, you know, they raise kids and m- maybe the kids give them happiness, maybe not. You know, it, it's a big crapshoot. But the very, very few people, there are very few people who will, will can honestly say, I am a happy human being. Most people will say, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I'm, con- I'm content. But to say that they're happy and truly mean it, very few. Very few. Well,
0: I can say I'm happy. I can, <laughs> too. I can too. I know.
1: <laughs> but there are very few uh-huh. people. Very few people can say that. And it's it's a, it's a result of upbringing more than anything else.
0: Mm-hmm. And my my mother was tough on me. She was a tough little thing. Um, but I understood why she was tough. She wanted me to do well, but she never put me down. She never said to me, you're stupid, you're this, right. you're that. Never. Mm-mm. She never did that. Neither did Just my had father. High,
1: had high standards.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the worst thing we can say to a child is to be negative towards them. That's right.
1: Or, that's, that's right.
0: Yeah. You know. That's right. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's uh, hopefully uh, the educational system will look you up and put your programs in. Either me or because,
1: people yeah. that I teach and train how to do this work.
0: Uh huh. Mm-hmm.
1: Leaving, you know, I want to leave a legacy of people who can carry this work forward i'm 71 years old so i'm in great health but can't i can't do this forever
0: no that's what we need that's what we train people that's right yeah i do the same i train people to do healing energy healing right because one day i I won't be able to, or I may not be here anymore. So, And I'm 74, so I'm a little older than you are. But uh, So where can my listeners get a hold of you and your programs? I created a
1: webpage for everybody who's listening on my website. So if you go to dougnoll.co slash spiritual-warrior. I'm going to put it in the chat box, and then you can go ahead and post it in your show notes. So it's going to be dougnoll.co dot c o slash spiritual where's that key there warrior
0: and i'll put that on our uh when i yeah. publish this oh there we go so let me- now
1: now that page will take you to my website dougknoll.com and there's a and on that page will be is, is a free ebook for anybody who wants to download it that talks about all of the things we've been talking about today, how to de-escalate and calm an angry person. Plus, you can get a copy of my book, De-escalate. Plus, you get access to some of my, my online courses that teach the skills we've been talking about. And then from that page, you can go into the rest of the website where there's just a ton of articles that I've written and YouTube videos and all kinds and of stuff. So.
0: Wow. You know, I'm grateful for someone like you.
1: Oh, thank you so that
0: yeah, so that we can you you know you can share your knowledge with others and, and especially the work that you've done in prisons, you know, to help murderers finally, you know calm down and
1: right.
0: you know and, and people in prison period, you know, not to uh, look to hurt one another the way right. they do. it's yeah. It's so important that we begin to love and respect each other for who we are. I feel
1: absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. We've had a great conversation.
0: Thank you so much. And, you know, um, again, one more time, uh, where can my listeners get a hold of you?
1: DougKnowell.co slash
0: spiritual-warrior. Thank you so much, Doug, for for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the show. And uh, again, a big thank you to Doug. And please check out uh, the work that he does because it's phenomenal. And uh, I thank you for listening today. And I hope you heard what you needed to hear. And uh, visit me at motivateyourlife.net. And please subscribe to this YouTube channel, the Spiritual Warrior Coach Podcast. We're also on Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, Amazon. Google and everywhere else, and international. And for those of you maybe wanting to learn energy healing, check out my book on Amazon, Gentle Energy Touch: The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. So uh, again, a big thank you to Doug for this uh, incredible interview. I've learned I've learned so much, and um, to everyone out there listening, have a beautiful week filled with love and with light. Love, Barbara.